Go thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, thou shalt hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Coming to you from an undisclosed location in Middle Tennessee and examining current events from a biblical perspective, this is Bible News Radio with your hosts, Randall and Stacy Harp. All right, hey everybody. Welcome to tonight's edition, the special edition of Bible News Radio. I am your sweet and lovable host, Stacy Lynn Harp. And tonight what we're going to do is we are going to discuss, we're going to show you some of the, the fireworks that took place today at the confirmation hearing for Amy Coney Barrett, who is destined to fill the spot of the late Justice Ginsburg. I tell you what, I know some of you might hate me for playing some of these speeches tonight. And what I would ask is that you that you don't hate me. I have nothing to do with it, people. I'm just sharing a worldview. And really, that's why I'm doing this, because as Christians, we need to be able to engage the culture for Christ and look at things from different perspectives, right? So what is a worldview? A worldview is simply a viewpoint and how somebody looks at the world. I, as a Christian, look at the world through the lens of Scripture. I look at what the Bible, what God's Word says about it. And that's how I interpret and see the world. Other people don't. And so tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at worldview. We're going to look at what some of the Democrats had to say today. We're going to look at what some of the Republicans had to say today. And then we're also going to look at what Amy herself had to say tonight. And so I hope you... You stick for us, you know, for an hour, because it's going to be about an hour. Um, and uh, take some notes and enjoy the show with me, will you? This is Michael W. Smith's old song called Freedom. It's a, it's a personal favorite of mine. And uh, living in America, I believe we have that freedom. And this is the greatest country on earth. And I hope that you agree with me that, that uh, we should take what's going on here very serious it really is very serious and some of the things you're going to hear tonight from some of the people who are running even for office today what they're saying is what they believe and it is true and we'll talk about that as the time goes forward tonight so please do me a favor share this out on whatever platform you're on i know we're on facebook i believe we're on twitch we're still having problems connecting the Periscope and YouTube, but I think we're going to upload this to YouTube afterwards if uh, we can't get live. So I'm glad you're here. And I hope that you've had a good day. I have. Yeah, I have. It's been busy, though. It's been a busy day. I'm not normally broadcasting on Monday anymore, so it's kind of interesting to kind of be here on Monday night. So uh, with that said, I'm going to go ahead and cleverly shut my music off <laughs> and then uh uh call my man to the screen if he wants to come on and say hi to everybody not quite yet not quite yet he doesn't want to come on yet people so what i will do i can come on but is, i'm is i will uh go ahead and log I in come to... on but i'm still fiddling with trying to get onto these other platforms i just want to see how handsome you look there you have it <laughs> 
All right. Well, I'm going to say hi to some people if there's anybody watching. Um, and I am going to go over on Twitch as well and see if there's anybody over there. I know we have a couple followers on Twitch now, which is kind of cool. Maybe God wants us to pay attention to Twitch as well as Facebook. So I don't know if anybody's looking. It doesn't look like there's anybody over there yet. But Not who knows? Yet. Maybe they will be later. All right. Hold on a minute. And, you know, it really is amazing what Randall and I can do with two computers or three computers, depending on how many Bareface is using. Uh, just one. All right. But, uh, yeah, on the broadcasting side. Oh, the audio on Twitch isn't working, Sean says. Okay, so I see Sean and Lynn, Mia and Phyllis over on Facebook. And I actually, I know there's more over there because I don't follow everybody that joins but i know that you're there yeah i do we had quite a few people tune in last night so uh so thanks for tuning in i hope uh let me know if you're interested in me doing this because uh this week is supposed to be like a hot hot week uh and i know that i have a life besides sitting in front of a computer and watching this just like you do um so uh you know, I can't spend my whole day watching stuff. If this was my only job, which I kind of wish it was, then I would be like totally into it. I'd be like taking notes and stuff and, and all that. But uh, but let me know what you think through the show. Um, and what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at, I pulled, um, I pulled one, I, I pulled Patricia O'Hara's testimony, uh, Ernst. Uh, Joni her Ernst, I can't say her name, but I pulled her testimony. I pulled Kamala's, don't hate me. And I pulled Amy's testimony. And there was, I think there was one other one I pulled as well. But we'll, we'll get to that. And there's a reason I pulled these specific ones, because this was over six hours of testimony. And so really what I'm going to show you is about 40 minutes, 40 minutes actually in total. Um, and I honestly have to say that... I was surprised at certain people, how relatively kind they were. I really was. And um, so in saying that, I, <laughs> I hope that, uh, I, you know, here's my goal, okay? Because you guys know me, most of you, well, some of you, maybe not all of you. But um, if you don't know me, hopefully you'll come to, to know me. Um, I, I really strive to be fair, right? I mean, I really do. Um, I am no fan of Kamala Harris at all. No, not one iota of her worldview, but am I going to attack her looks and tell her, you know, and, and call her, you know, you know, ugly or anything? No, because I think she's actually attractive. I don't think she's a, you know, um, I, I don't think she's a, I mean, she's good. I mean, I don't think she's ugly. Okay. But I'm not going to agree with her worldview. I'm not going to attack her character, her personally. But I'm not going to agree with her worldview. Um, you know, so if you get mad at that, then then don't get mad at me. Well, I guess you can get mad at me. <laughs> I have, I've done this 16 years. I've had people get mad at me just because I, you know, I have curly hair. Ah, you're crazy. You have curly hair. Do you ever notice that, that women with curly hair and men with curly hair often get stereotyped as crazy? And you know why? I'm totally convinced. It has to do with the fact that every single clown out there has curly hair. Have you ever noticed that? Just saying. What is it that there's this like subliminal message that if you have curly hair, then you're nuts. 
Uh, just kidding. Anyway, so let's start with, I want to let Randall get set up here, but um, Bareface, if you would start with, there is an order I gave you. You want to go with that order? I think so, because it was the order in which they, they actually spoke. Um, let's see. So, so, um... so, let's see here. I'm trying to find the first one that I sent you. I'm waiting for it to load right now. Bob Walker? Bob Buckers? Yes, yes, yes. So, so the very first person I want you to hear is a Democrat. And, and this is what I actually wrote on my Facebook page. And I'm going to wait for my Facebook page to load because for some reason, all of a sudden, my Facebook's running like, like a snail. Um, but this was a um, Democrat lady who is a very good speaker, actually. Very good. Um, but I wrote on my Facebook page, quote, she wins the best speech for Democrat drama queen. I give her a 10 out of 10. Uh, Amy Klobacher, who is a Democrat in Minnesota, she really has very good communication skills. And she's very very animated and very direct and stuff. So on a scale of one to 10, I mean, she gets good for speaking skills. I don't like her content, but I thought she's a little overly dramatic and you'll understand why once we start listening to this. And do you want to do all 11 minutes of this? Or? Um, yeah, I'll cut it off when I feel like it, but yeah, I think, I think it's worth listening to. So this is Amy Klobuchar or Bacher or something Klobuchar. from a Democrat in uh, Minnesota. Don't hate me, people. Sorry. Sorry if you do, but I don't mean for you to hate me. It's, it is one of those things, though. <sighs> this committee is gathered today for what I consider one of its most solemn duties and one that I take very seriously. Federal judges, senators, the President of the United States, we all take an oath to uphold the Constitution. We make promises to do justice, to tell the truth at its core, that's what judges do, right? Figure out the truth, figure out justice. My mom, a second grade teacher, spent her life teaching little kids what was right or wrong, what was true or false. I still believe it matters, and so do the American people. But we are dealing with a president who doesn't think truth matters. By the way, she looks good and he has allies in Congress who in the past defended our democracy, but are now doing his Public. bidding. Senators who clearly set out that the president, a precedent that the president in an election year should wait, that we should have an election, and that then the people choose the president, and the president chooses the nominee. That was your precedent. It has been said that the wheels of justice turn slowly. Injustice, on the other hand, can move at lightning speed, as we are seeing here today. We cannot, and you watching at home should not, separate this hearing from the moment we are in and from the judge he is trying to rush through. To respond to Senator Cruz, this isn't a rush to justice. This is a rush to put in a justice. Yeah, it is. A justice whose views are known and who will have a profound impact on your life. Lord willing. And yes, these policies that the court decides, they matter. Yeah, they do. Where you can go to school who you can marry, decisions you can make about your own body, 
and yes, your health care. The president knows this. We have a president who has refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power after an election. Every candidate does that, but not this guy. So did. We have a president who has fired or replaced five inspector generals, Senator Grassley, who has fired an attorney general, an FBI director, and is now going after their replacements. We have a president who divides our country each and every day. He has called our military suckers and losers. He's refused Prove to it. condemn white supremacists. That's such and a he lie. has the gall to hold up a Bible as a prop in front of a church instead of heeding its words <gasps> to act justly. What? And now he says this election will end up in court. Mm. Why, Senator like Cruz? In 2000. Does President Trump matter? He is putting the Supreme Court in place, in his words, to, quote, look at the ballots, end quote. Well, I won't concede that this election is headed to the court because you know at home exactly what the president is up to. That's why you're voting. That's why you are voting in droves. Yeah, we are. Why are you voting? Well, you know that you're right. Your health, your health care is on the line. No, it's not. You know that they are trying to push through a justice who has been critical of upholding the Affordable Care Act, and they're doing it in the middle of a pandemic. And you can see here in this room the misplaced priorities of this Republican-run Senate, and it's in your hands to change it. Are they working to pass a bill to help Americans to get the testing they need to save their lives? Are they working to help the moms trying to balance a toddler? <laughs> wait, hold on, on wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait, on I, I have to say Are something. They trying to <laughs> uh, after I get done laughing, okay. So I don't know if I can stand the rest of this, but how, how, how much into it are we on that? Almost four minutes. Four minutes, okay. Well, let me just say this. Okay, first of all, <laughs> 99.6% of people with COVID recover, just so you know. Okay, we learned that last night at the at the at the thing that we we shared, right? So, yeah. And in the pandemic, yeah, the pandemic that that the Democrats have made into a social experiment to destroy our country, especially in states like a political weapon. Yeah, like like California and Minnesota. Actually, you have you have this lady like all upset because okay. So in case you don't know, what they're upset about is that that the Republicans are trying to push this through because when the last justice came through, you know they said well. You know, the Democrats couldn't push it through. They had to wait, blah, blah. Okay, let me ask you something. When was that? Well, it was in 2016. If you listened to this today, you would have heard this numerous times. This was their big theme. And and the other big theme was that, you know, that this is all about overturning Obamacare, or as I refer to it, abomination care. Remember, this, this was actually the, the bill that was passed that nobody read. Remember, they said that they had to pass it. They to had find to pass it in order it. to read it, right? And and here's truth and disclosure: I was without health insurance for almost eight years. Okay, it wasn't until I talked to somebody I met in networking, who's a health insurance guy, who he actually put me on Obamacare because we're so poor that we get the free version. True story. I have my 
statements to prove so it. So poor, but we, we don't have to. Under the line, well, we're, we're we're so poor that we get it for free. So I would be one of the ones impacted should this like get overturned of this horror story. You know, I mean, me and Bareface, we would be completely without it again, and life would be awful. I mean, it really, truly. I mean, we might just die or something if we don't have socialized medicine at our fingertips. How many times have I sought medical care since we've had medical insurance? None. Yeah. But doesn't mean you shouldn't. I know, but I'm... But anyway, the point is, all throughout this stuff, and this is stuff, you're not going to see some of this because cause you didn't sit through all of it, and I didn't either. I'm just highlighting some people. But, but what the Democrats did was... And this was kind of funny, actually. I was sitting there watching this show because that's exactly what it was. First of all, number one, they all complained that this is a rush job. Okay? All right. I'll give them that. It's kind of fast. Whatever. But I thought it was fascinating because I observe stuff. I'm a, claim I'm, a, I'm a clinically trained therapist. I observe stuff probably a lot other people don't do. And one thing I observed is that whenever these guys ladies were um <laughs> complaining or doing their rant uh they had these big props right and they were all emotive like some of them like camilla you'll see in a little bit she had a prop of a girl who had a disease and then she moves the picture and then there's ruth bader ginsburg with the big word descent on it kind of subtle um behind it so they had all these big huge blown up props that i'm sure they had to go to office depot to get printed up or something i don't know where they get it printed but they had probably some are more expensive because tax dollars right but they had all this stuff printed up and it was all for show and it was all emotive and it had nothing to do with this precious woman with seven children two of which have been adopted and it had nothing to do with her, and this is why I'm going to be showing you a couple of people who were who were well, actually respectful and actually addressed the judge with respect. I don't recall, but was there a um, outcry about rush job after Scalia passed and and then Kavanaugh was put up for confirmation? I don't, I don't know, but that was uh, brutal. It was, but but I don't recall any cries of rush job. And it, it wasn't long after his death that a nomination was put forward. Right. Um, the the complaint of rush job now is because it's close to an election, and they were hoping that they would get that opportunity to. Well, that's what's funny about this. Yeah. That's why this is funny. Yeah. Okay, so we got to find some humor in this. Both sides of the aisle, just so transparent. Mm. Okay, so do you want to? So, should I play the rest of this woman? Do you want me to pray? pray what do you think, Bareface? You want to hear more? I don't know. I'm, if it's more of the same, then no. Okay, then let's move on to the next one. Okay, so the next one then, uh, play Ernst. 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 Senator Joni Ernst, who is a Republican in Iowa. Uh, she was one of the first female Republicans to serve on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and today she gave an opening statement on the first day of the committee hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. And uh, we'll, I want you to see the contrast between her and the one that we just saw. Okay. So, you know, I also think this lady is dressed pretty, and she has nice hair. I like her hair. It's pretty hair. It's 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 it looks like it's natural color it's it's very beautiful it's coming in gray and 
you know, she's got a pretty smile. Um, and, the, and the other lady looked great in blue, I just might add, because these are important things. Okay, go ahead. And Judge Barrett, thank you so much for being in front of us today. Welcome to you. And of course, I am so glad that you have had your family join you today as well. Only a hundred years ago, women in this country were given the right to vote. And today we consider adding another woman to the highest court in the land. And I can't help but be so proud of all of the, every one of our women have accomplished in this incredible nation. This is the first time that I've been a member of the Judiciary Committee during a Supreme Court nomination process. And as you probably know, like most Americans, I'm not a lawyer. I bring a slightly different perspective onto this committee. But one thing is very important to me, and it's something that matters to Iowans, whether they are lawyers or not. I firmly believe in the role of our Supreme Court. It is the defender of our Constitution. At the end of the day, that's my test for a Supreme Court justice. Will you defend the Constitution? It frustrates me and it frustrates my fellow Iowans that the Supreme Court has become a super legislature for a Congress that frankly won't come together, discuss these tough issues, and do its job. What I hear from my colleagues on the left is about judicial activism and what they want to see in their nominees, which is that super legislature. They are projecting that upon you, Judge Barrett. That's what they are projecting as they talk about what cases may or may not come in front of the Supreme Court. Matter of fact, I think it was just the other day that Vice President uh, Joe Biden told the American people they don't deserve to know whether he is going to pack the court. <gasps> they don't deserve to know who his judicial nominees would be. I think we do need to know, again, because it's what the left is projecting on you today is what they want to see in their nominees. But that's not what our founders intended the court to be. I hope that this hearing will be an open, fair conversation about how Judge Barrett would be as Justice Barrett. I am concerned, however, that not everyone involved in this hearing shares that goal. We've already seen hints in that over the past few weeks, immediately attacking your faith and your precious family. Yep. Instead of entering into this nomination process with an open mind and a desire to understand this woman who has been nominated for the highest court in the land, the focus is on a plan or a strategy, a series of tactics to undermine, coerce, and confuse the American people. A plan, Judge Barrett, to undermine you as a person, undermine your family, and undermine what you hold dear. Women all over the world are painfully familiar with this strategy. 
we are all too often perceived and judged based on who someone else needs or wants us to be, not on who we actually are. I cannot speak for those that would attempt to undermine your nomination, but as a fellow woman, a fellow mom, a fellow Midwesterner, I see you for who you are. And I'm glad the American people have the opportunity to get to know Amy Coney Barrett. This week will be an opportunity to dig into your background further and understand more about your judicial philosophy. But what your political opponents want to paint you as is a TV or cartoon version of a religious radical, a so-called handmaid that feeds into all of the ridiculous stereotypes they have set out to lambast people of faith in America. And that's wrong. It might be less comical if this was the first time the left has trotted out this partisan playbook. Your political opponents have made these types of religious attacks on nearly every Supreme Court candidate nominated by a Republican president in the modern era. And every time, like clockwork, they say they really mean it this time, this nominee, this woman in front of us, she is the absolute worst. I'm struck by the irony of how demeaning to women their accusations really are. That you, a working mother of seven, with a strong record of professional and academic accomplishment, couldn't possibly respect the goals and desires of today's women. That you, as a practicing Catholic, with a detailed record of service, lack compassion. I know you to be compassionate. Your record on the Seventh Circuit says, says that you are. And more importantly, it shows that your demonstrated commitment is to defending the Constitution. The great freedom of being an American woman is that we can decide how to build our lives, whom to marry, what kind of person we are, and where we want to go. I served in the Army something not exactly popular at various points in America's history. We don't have to fit the narrow definition of womanhood. We create our own path. Justice Ginsburg was one such woman, and I would like to pay tribute to her for what she did to pave the way for women of today. It's really quite simple what your opponents are doing. They are attacking you as a mom, and a woman of faith because they cannot attack your qualifications. Every year, I travel to every single one of Iowa's 99 counties and talk to men and women from all walks of life. Whether they are farmers or nurses or small business owners, they want a government that is accountable to them. When Congress makes a law that oversteps the Constitution, the ripples can be felt, whether it's on farms in Montgomery County, where I'm from, and the manufacturing facilities of Dubuque. It can be felt in the church services of Sioux City and the community meetings in Waterloo. The Supreme Court's only job is to rule on the cases before it and defend the Constitution. 
To do that well, a justice needs to be thoughtful, restrained, and wise. Judge Barrett, so far I have seen all of those things in you. I am so glad that we have you in front of us. I look forward to learning more about you. I want to thank you and your family for being in this nomination today. And certainly, this, folks, is what a mom can do. Thank you, Judge Barrett, very much. Thank you. There you go. I love that. I actually love her hair. <laughs> I just love that lady's hair. It's so pretty. Um, I uh, But aside from that, because you know you're all thinking it, just saying, um, you know, I think the most the most profound line was when uh, she was saying they're attack you as a mother, as a woman of faith, because they cannot attack your qualifications. I think, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, this is a this is a lady, Amy. I'm just gonna call her Amy. Amy, Judge Amy. I'll just call her Judge Amy. Jo- Judge Amy um, is somebody who has respect from both sides of the aisle, right? And in her academic career, in her career as a judge. Um, even on the circuit court, she was uh, lauded by both sides of the aisle. In fact, that's part of the reason why I'm going to, uh, the last video we're going to look at in a little bit is is her mentor who mentored her, uh, who also uh, advocated for Elena Kagan when she was, was uh, going through the process to get on the Supreme Court, which you'll see in a second. But, um, but so anyway, I think that's interesting. Um, and completely different than what we saw from the, from the first lady. Randall, do you have any thoughts on what you just watched? Cause Randall didn't watch any of this. So I'm trying to get his, his feedback. Yeah, it's good. I mean, this ultimately what this, um, hearing should be about and, and the fact, you know, the, the sanity set up these rules, the constitution just says that the Senate can advise and consent. As far as nomination, the Supreme Court doesn't even give the number of justices it should be on the Supreme Court, just that it can, um, that it can change as, you know, as required. Um, I think there were maybe three at first, went to five, up to nine, back to five, then back to nine, and, and someone was talking about moving up to 13 justices or something. Anyway, but. That's all crazy history. But it's just kind of curious. You know, I don't think the framers, when they said advise and consent, you know, had any of this in mind. Any of this. um, No. And so, you know, it's all about, hey, is this a a suitable nomination for for the court? And yeah, to attack someone... (laughs) You know, and it should be simply that. Like, what? yeah, I agree with you. You know, they have to attack her as a mom and her faith because they certainly can't attack her qualifications, which really should be what this is about. Right. Which... And it's an, an advising and con- advising the president, yeah, that's good, and consenting, you know, yes or no. I mean, this whole drawn-out process, it'd be interesting to know when this came into play. Which brings us to Ms. Harris. Want to go with go there? Yes, we do. Because this, this is a woman who, <laughs> first of all, her audio didn't work at first, which I thought was funny. Um, and, uh, 
and 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 then you know she gave her speech uh um we'll see if we can get through the whole thing because because it's it's dramatic it's only 10 minutes actually so hold on people it's only 10 minutes 10 minutes you could do it you could do it yeah you can uh just remember um senator harris is who's running for the vice presidency uh just remember her worldview, right? She supports abortion on demand, murdering little babies. Uh, she's got some pretty hellish belief systems. And and if Joe Biden dies while in office, if he should be elected legally, uh, you know, she'll end up being the president, which would then uh, put her in, quote, the most powerful position in the world, right? We don't want that, do we? No, I don't think so. But just listen to what she has to say, and then we'll weigh in on it. Maybe I'll make some comments as she's talking, too. But, but look at the background in particular once she's on screen. Look at, just watch, watch the show. It's a show. Go ahead. Senator Harris. Can you hear me? Yes, hello. We can hear you. Yeah, we can. We hear you. <laughs> This hearing has brought together more than well, 50 just, people just, to uh, sit inside a room for hours. Uh, That's Senator, closed door. Yes. Uh, just wait just one second. We don't see you. Of course. You don't see me. Uh, one, congratulations on being on the ticket. I hadn't told you that. There we go. All right. <laughs> can now, you see me now? Yeah, I can see you now. Hear you loud and clear. The floor is yours. Mr. Chairman, can you see me? Can you hear me? I see you. I hear you. The floor is yours. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this hearing has brought together more than 50 people to sit inside of a closed door room. Oh, wait, for hours can, wait, can we stop this just for just mute it? We hear you. Whoops. Wait, sorry. I gotta make one comment, okay? And I'm I didn't pl I'm not playing this part of the the hearing, but I do have to tell you that at one point, uh, Lindsey Graham was addressed about uh, CDC requirements in the in the building okay and so basically what he said just this is my cliff notes he he basically said look we were complying with all the cdc guidelines everybody is six feet apart wearing masks blah blah etc and then he went on to say and i thought this was interesting because somebody said can you please clarify what you mean by cdc i don't know who it was i forgot but but he, he explained that they're following all the guidelines but he also said and i thought this was cool that he refused to get tested because the, his political opponents wanted him to be. He believes that he could just go to work and not get tested if he's already been tested and he's shown he's negative and he doesn't have any problems, you know, with COVID or whatever. So just so you know, that kind of political discussion actually also took place. And I think that... They want to be retest before... Right. And, you know, of course, I was thinking about my dad and the whole stupid thing with assisted living that I have to deal with. But but I thought it was good that Lindsey Graham, who I'm not a big fan of, by the way, even though he's a Republican, um, I did think it was kind of it showed a little spine that he actually said some of the stuff he said. So I think that's that's kind of in the back of her mind at this this opening comment. I think as we're nearing the election, he's found a, he's got a newfound conservatism. Yeah, I know. He's kind of a rhino. But anyway, yeah. Go ahead. See me? Can you hear me? I see you. I hear you. The floor is yours. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this hearing has brought together more than 50 people to sit inside of a closed-door room for hours. 
while our nation is facing a deadly airborne virus. 99.6 people recover. Common sense requests to keep, keep people safe, including not requiring testing for all members, despite a coronavirus outbreak among senators of this very committee. By contrast, in response to this recent Senate outbreak, the leaders of Senate Republicans rightly postponed business on the Senate floor this week to protect the health and safety of senators and staff. Mr. Chairman, for the same reason, I think this they were overreacting. Should have been postponed. The decision to hold this hearing now is reckless and places facilities workers, janitorial staff, and congressional aides and Capitol Police at risk. Not to mention that while tens of millions of Americans are struggling to pay their bills, the Senate should be prioritizing coronavirus relief and providing financial support to those families. The American people need to, to have help to make rent or their mortgage payment. We should provide financial assistance to those who have lost their job and help parents put food on the table. Small businesses need funds? help as do the cities, towns, and hospitals that this crisis has pushed to the brink. Let's talk about the, the crisis The House bill would help families and small businesses get through this crisis. But Senate Republicans have not lifted a finger for 150 days, which is how long that bill has been here in the Senate, um, to move the bill. Yet, this committee is determined to rush a Supreme Court confirmation hearing through in just 16 days. Yeah, we are. Senate Republicans have made it crystal clear that rushing a Supreme Court nomination is more important than helping and supporting the American people who are suffering from a deadly pandemic and a devastating economic crisis. What world is she Their living in? Their priorities are not the American people's priorities, but for the moment, Senate Republicans hold a majority in the Senate and determine the, the schedule. Moment. So here we are. <laughs> the Constitution of the United States entrusts the Senate with the solemn duty to carefully consider nominations for lifetime appointments to the United States Supreme Court. Yet the Senate majority is rushing this process Consent and jamming and President Trump's nominee through the Senate while Advice people are actually voting. Just 22 days before the end of the election. More than 9 million Americans have already voted, and millions more will vote while this illegitimate committee process is underway. A clear majority of Americans want whomever wins this election to fill this seat, and my Republican colleagues know that. Yet, they are deliberately defying the will of the people in their attempt to roll back the rights and protections provided under the Affordable Care Act. And let's remember, in 2017, President Trump and congressional Republicans repeatedly tried to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, they did. But remember, people from all walks of life spoke out and demanded Republicans stop trying to take away the American people's health care. Republicans finally realized that the Affordable Care Act is too popular to repeal in Congress. So now they are trying to bypass the will of the voters and have the Supreme Court. <laughs> the will of the voters? It had nothing to do with the That's voters. President Trump promised to only nominate judges who will get rid of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. This administration, with the support of Senate Republicans, will be in front of the Supreme Court on November 10th. 
to argue that the entire Affordable Care Act should be struck down. That's in 29 days. May it be so. Happen. May it be so, and people. And that's a big reason why Senate Republicans are rushing this process. They are trying to get a justice onto the court in time to ensure they can strip away the protections of the Affordable Care Act. As it should be. And if they succeed, it will result in millions of people losing access to health care at the worst possible time in the middle of a pandemic. 23 million Americans could lose their altogether. It's not a pandemic, it's a pandemic. They will eliminate protections for 135 million Americans with pre-existing conditions like diabetes and asthma, heart disease, or cancer. Okay, here comes the emotion. Oh, this is a campaign speech, campaign speech. No I know. Look to the picture, though, that she's got right there. She's going to remove Insurance that soon. Insurance companies could deny you coverage or could sell you a plan that won't pay a dime toward treating anything related to your pre-existing condition. If the Affordable Care Act is struck down, you will have to once again pay for things like mammograms, and cancer screenings and birth control. Seniors will pay. Wait a minute! I thought Planned Parenthood would give you birth control for free. Kicked off yeah. Their parents' plans. And these are not abstract issues. Other we need to be clear like about how overturning the Affordable Care Act will impact the people we all represent. For example, Micah, who is 11 years old and she lives in Southern California. Here it comes. So Micah enjoys being a Girl Scout and ice skating, and reading, and eating pasta, and baking. Her mother says the only reason Micah is able to live her life, as she does now, is because the Affordable Care Act guarantees that her health insurance cannot deny her coverage or limit her care because it's too expensive. You see, Micah has a congenital heart defect. She goes to multiple specialists throughout the year and gets an MRI with anesthesia every six months. At just 11 months old, Micah's family had already hit $50,000 in medical expenses, and her biannual MRI costs were $15,000 a session. And so, correction, she, by, by 11 months old, her family had hit $500,000 in medical expenses. If Republicans succeed in striking down the Affordable Care Act, insurance companies will be able to deny coverage for children with serious conditions. Children like Micah. Oh, wait, can we, can we pause this well, just a minute? Sure. I gotta say no. something. Okay, this just irritates me because th this is... This irritates <laughs> you? It doesn't pull on your heartstrings? Well, if you saw some of the other baloney that was put forth. Okay, so think of who's telling you this, first of all. This is a person who advocates for the murder of babies in the womb, right? So ask, ask me if she really gives a crap about children in general, right? Because I don't think so. Second of all, it's not the government's responsibility to provide us health care. It's the responsibility of the American individual to get off their butt, go get a job and earn money and pay for their, their health care and or have work for an employer that is generous and wants to give them health care or some type of benefits. It's not the job of government to do that. If and I could just interject one thing there. Yeah. Go back and look historically the cost of medical care versus medical insurance. Medical right. insurance is the primary reason why medical care is so 
costly. And this is, I, and we know because we paid out of pocket for eight years mm. for me, mm. right? For my medicines and other mm. stuff that I used to take that I no longer take. Oh yeah, yeah. It is completely insane. It's because of the bureaucracy and red tape that's created, and and the long time it took to get reimbursed that the the prices were inflated hoping to collect some percentage yeah. of the charge i mean go back to go back to um you know heidi and you know whatever you know all the good old stories where timmy or you know needed an operation or whatever and they couldn't afford it um because that was when, you know, people, like any other profession, plumber, electrician, they don't have, we don't have plumbing insurance or electrician's insurance to, you know, help pay for the cost of those things. Uh, they cost a little bit, but, you know, it's not at the point yet. I don't know where maybe somebody's tried it. Anyway, this is supposed to be quick. That that it's it's just the introduction of health insurance and people. Oh, I got a five dollar copay. I've got got the sniffles. I'm going to the doctor. Well, that doctor doesn't do an office visit for five dollars. I mean, that's not how they bill their time is five dollars an hour. I'll bet you that. So they right. bill the insurance for whatever, and they say, well, it's just an office visit. You only get thirty percent of that. So. <laughs> they charge five hundred dollars for that office visit, so yeah. they can recoup, you know, be reimbursed for their time and overhead and blah blah blah. And yeah, it's just again. It's... So this point, though, to her point, though, her point is the whole reason these evil Republicans are doing this is so that girls like this, you know, they'll be left out in the cold. Can get their they'll be government funded which means your neighbors no, and, and tax and, and, dollars and fiat currency from the federal reserve and i will add i will add since this is bible news radio let me ask you something who is your neighbor people everybody's your neighbor and i would argue that that if that family is in need and they're in crisis and they're in a body of believers then that body of believers can help contribute and help that. That's what Acts tells us. Acts tells us the New Testament church actually took up things and nobody was in want because the church did what they did in order to help people, right? And that is the difference between the worldview of socialists and people who hold the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is, hey, we all love one another and help each other out. The socialist worldview is the government takes care of you and you act like a victim. And that's what Kamala Harris is advocating in this little speech. But let's continue yeah. to watch it. And because... the, the socialist view is that you are a servant of the government. Everybody has the value assigned to them by the government. The government decides, you know, right. who gets funded, whatever. Anyway, so. Okay. We'll watch the rest of it. Yes, because she talks about Ginsburg and she's, you know, she mm. reveals her book. Yeah, I saw the book back there. So yeah, it was conveniently hidden behind the girl. No one should face financial ruin to get their child or their spouse or their parent the care they need. And no family should be kept from seeing a doctor or getting treatment because an insurance company says that the treatment is too expensive. In America, access to health care should not be determined based on how much money you have. Healthcare and access to healthcare should be a right. 
MICA, and millions of others who are protected by the Affordable Care Act know this is fundamentally what is at stake with this Supreme Court nomination. And of course, there's more at stake. Throughout our history, Americans have brought cases to the United States Supreme Court in our ongoing fight for civil rights, human rights, and equal justice. Decisions like Brown versus Board of Education, which opened up educational opportunities for black boys and girls. Roe versus Wade, which recognized a woman's right to control her own body. But recognized the Loving right for a woman to kill her baby, you mean. Obergefell v. Hodges, which recognized that love is love. Because which recognized sexual sin is deviance, and they the normalized land. homosexuality. The United States Supreme love Court is, love my is often the last refuge for equal justice when our constitutional rights are being violated. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg devoted her life to fight for equal justice. And she defended the Constitution. She <laughs> advocated for human rights lies. and equality. It's all lies, people. She stood up for the rights of women. She protected workers. She fought for the rights of consumers against big corporations. She supported LGBTQ rights. Boo, and hiss. she did so much more. But now, she was evil. her legacy and the rights she fought so hard to protect are in jeopardy. Yay. By replacing Praise God. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg <laughs> with someone who will undo her legacy. God, I hope. President Trump is attempting to roll back Americans' rights for decades to come. What a load of crap. But look, that with Barrett, this nomination, look. equal justice under law is at stake. Our voting rights are at stake. No, they're not. Workers' rights are at stake. Nope. Consumer rights are at stake. No, the right not. to a safe and legal abortion is at stake. Yeah, it is. And holding corporations accountable is at stake. And again, there's so much more. So, Mr. Chairman, I do believe this hearing is a clear attempt to jam through a Supreme Court nominee who will take health care away from millions of people during a deadly pandemic that has already killed more than 214,000 Americans. I believe we must listen to our constituents and protect their access to health care and wait to confirm a new Supreme Court justice until after Americans decide who they want in the White House. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Harris. Uh, Senator Kennedy. So let's see here. I gotta, I gotta throw out a statistic. Let's see here, approximately. And, and um, while I'm doing that, let me remind people of when, when Feinstein and others say that we, you know, we have to pass a bill to find out what's in it, the Affordable Care Act. Um, I forget how many pages it was. It started off with like 900 some pages. I think it was well over a thousand by the time it passed, um, and barely. And immediately challenged in the court, and as and as the proponents of the Affordable Care Act were presenting it before the Supreme Court, uh, their arguments were failing miserably that it was not constitutional. They couldn't insist that you know every American have health insurance um, and funding and that stuff that is is clearly unconstitutional. And then Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, basically said, I don't have a transcript in front of me, but said, 
Well, now, if this was a tax, you know, if this wasn't, uh, you know, a mandate, a healthcare mandate, but it was, it was really a tax, you know, that was equally, you know, apportioned among the states, kind of wink, wink, then we could consider it. And then, you know, then the defense, the proponents of the ACA said, oh, that's exactly what this is, your honor. This is, this is a tax that's, it's like, oh, okay, well, now we can talk is basically how it went. And then, and then because of, you know, it wouldn't have passed, um, uh, without Robert's vote, or it wouldn't even even got to a vote had Robert's, uh, not helped them out with their case. So, um, not a conservative at all. And that's, that's how that went. And that's how. So she threw out this 200,000 plus people dying of COVID, right? Which we all know have underlying conditions. And we also know that 99.6% of people that get COVID recover. Um, but, and so she cares clearly about human life, correct? Right? That's what, is that what we're talking about? So, so here's the thing. So this is a woman who advocates abortion on demand. She supports a woman, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who voted three times, three times she voted. Ruth Bader Ginsburg voted three times to advocate for partial birth abortion. Fortunately, it was banned and this woman did not get her way. But partial birth abortion, simply put, is the procedure where the baby is coming out and the doctor murders the baby as it's being born. And I will tell you that C-SPAN, many years ago, when this was being argued on the floor, C-SPAN in particular cut away the camera so that people could not see what this looked like. And I've always advocated, all right, if you're somebody that advocates for abortion, then you should be able to go and see one done live and you should witness it firsthand and then tell me it's okay after that. Um, yeah, right. That's not going to happen. But let, let's go to the table of abortion totals reported by the Center for Disease Control. Do you know that in 1970, there was 193,491 abortions that were performed according to uh, the Center for Disease Control in 1970? There were five. Probably in states where it was legal. Okay. So there, there were actually five that five abortions per 1,000 women aged 15 to 44 in 1970. In 1973, that number jumped to 615,831 abortions. And then as you moved into the 80s, in 1980, there was 1,297,606 abortions. And then all through the 80s, it was over a million. It was about 13, it was about 1 million. It was, about, it was close to 1,400,000, give or take. In the mid-90s, that number started to go down into the 800,000s, and then it stayed in the 800,000s every year, all the way up until 2008. After 2009, the numbers dropped again, 789,507. And then in 2016, which is last, uh, the last numbers on this chart, it goes down to 623,471. This is per year, by the way, okay? 
And, you know, this, this adds up to millions upon millions upon millions of Americans that have died. And the difference between those Americans and the Americans that, uh, you know, Harris is talking about are that those Americans were happened to be inside the womb of an American woman. That's the only difference. And yet you don't see her advocating for care for those preborn babies. Um, and that's, that's, and I say preborn because it was a preborn baby. It's, it's a living being. It's just not born yet. He or she is not born yet. But anyway. All right. So do we finish watching her? Yeah, we did. Okay. All right. So let's watch, uh, I think, I think the, yeah, let's watch Amy's now. Let's watch Amy's, uh, uh, her speech. Okay, so now we're going to watch Amy. Uh, she endured a whole bunch more than, than what I just showed you, but but now she gets to talk. And then after that, we're going to show you uh, her mentor, who she actually refers to in the beginning. There was some audio problems. Uh, her mentor was supposed to speak first, but didn't, but didn't get a chance to. And Lindsey Graham actually let her speak after Amy spoke. So you're going to see that kind of in a reverse order. And I think it was even more powerful this way, to be honest. Stand up, please. <clears throat> Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you're about to give this committee is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Thank you. Welcome to the committee, to your family. You've uh, done a great job over there. Uh, the floor is yours, Judge. Ranking Member Feinstein and members of the committee, I'm honored and humbled to appear before you today as a nominee for Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. I thank the President for entrusting me with this profound responsibility, as well as for the graciousness that he and the First Lady have shown my family throughout this process. I thank Senator Young for introducing me, as he did at my hearing, to serve on the Seventh Circuit. And I also thank Senator Braun for his support. And while she could not be with us via uh, the satellite, I am also grateful to former Dean Patty O'Hara of the Notre Dame Law School. She hired me as a professor nearly 20 years ago, and she has been a mentor, colleague, and friend ever since. I thank the members of this committee and your other colleagues in the Senate who have taken the time to meet with me since my nomination. It's been a privilege to meet you. As I said when I was nominated to serve as a justice, I'm used to being in a group of nine, my family. Nothing is more important to me, and I'm very proud to have them behind me. My husband, Jesse, and I have been married for 21 years. He has been a selfless and wonderful partner every step of the way. I once asked my sister, why do you think marriage is hard? People are always saying that. I think it's easy. And she looked at me and said, well, maybe you should ask Jesse if he agrees with that. <laughs> I decided not to take her advice because I know that I am far luckier in love than I deserve. Jesse and I are parents to seven wonderful children all in the back there. Our oldest daughter, Emma, is a sophomore in college who just might follow her parents into a career in the law. Next is Vivian, who came to us from Haiti. 
When Vivian arrived, she was so weak that we were told she might never talk or walk normally. But now she deadlifts as much as the male athletes in our gym, and I assure you she has no trouble talking. Tess is 16, and while she shares her parents' love for the liberal arts, she also has a math gene that seems to have skipped her parents' generation. John Peter joined us shortly after the devastating earthquake in Haiti. And Jesse, who brought him home, still describes the shock on JP's face when he got off the plane in wintertime Chicago. Once that shock wore off, JP assumed the happy-go-lucky attitude that is still his signature trait. Liam is smart, strong, and kind, and to our delight, he still loves watching movies with mom and dad. Ten-year-old Juliet is already pursuing her goal of becoming an author by writing multiple essays and short stories, one of which she recently submitted for publication. And our youngest, Benjamin, um, is at home with friends. Benjamin has Down syndrome, and he is the unanimous favorite of the family. He was watching the hearing this morning, I'm told, and he was calling out our names as he saw the kids in the back. My own siblings are here, some in the hearing room and some nearby. Carrie, Megan, Eileen, Amanda, Vivian, and Michael are my oldest and dearest friends. We've seen each other through both the happy and hard parts of life, and I am so grateful that they are with me now. My parents, Mike and Linda Coney, are watching from their New Orleans home. My father was a lawyer and my mother was a teacher, which explains why I became a law professor. More important, my parents modeled for me and my six siblings a life of service, principle, faith, and love. I remember preparing for a grade school spelling bee against a boy in my class, and to boost my confidence, my dad saying, anything boys can do, girls can do better. And at least as I remember it, I spelled my way to victory. I received similar encouragement from the devoted teachers at St. Mary's Dominican, my all-girls high school in New Orleans. When I went to college, it never occurred to me that anyone would consider girls less capable than boys. My freshman year, I took a literature class filled with upperclassmen English majors. And when I did my first presentation, which was on breakfast at Tiffany's, I feared I had failed. But my professor took the time to talk to me. She filled me with confidence about how well I had done, and she became a mentor. And when I graduated with a degree in English, she gave me Truman Capote's collected works as a gift. Although I considered graduate studies in English, I decided that my passion for words was better suited to deciphering statutes than novels. I was fortunate to have wonderful legal mentors, in particular, the judges for whom I clerked. The legendary Judge Lawrence Silberman of the DC Circuit gave me my first job in the law and he continues to teach me today. He was by my side during my Seventh Circuit hearing. He swore me in at my investiture, and he's cheering me on from his living room right now. I also clerked for Justice Scalia. And like many law students, I felt like I knew the justice before I ever met him, because I had read so many of his colorful, accessible opinions. More than the style of his writing, though, it was the content of Justice Scalia's reasoning that shaped me. His judicial philosophy was straightforward. A judge must apply the law as it is written, not as she wishes it were. 
Sometimes that approach meant reaching results that he did not like. But as he put it in one of his best known opinions, that is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Justice Scalia taught me more than just law. He was devoted to his family, resolute in his beliefs, and fearless of criticism. And as I embarked on my own legal career, I resolved to maintain that same perspective. There's a tendency in our profession to treat the practice of law as all-consuming while losing sight of everything else. But that makes for a shallow and unfulfilling life. I worked hard as a lawyer and as a professor. I owed that to my clients, to my students, and to myself. But I never let the law define my identity or crowd out the rest of my life. A similar principle applies to the role of courts. Courts have a vital responsibility to the rule of law, which is critical to a free society. But courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches, elected by and accountable to the people. Amen. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. Come on. That is the approach that I have strived to follow as a judge on the Seventh Circuit. In every case, I have carefully considered the arguments presented by the parties, discussed the issues with my colleagues on the court, and done my utmost to reach the result required by the law, whatever my own preferences might be. I try to remain mindful that while my court decides thousands of cases a year, each case is the most important one to the litigants involved. After all, cases are not like statutes, which are often named for their authors. Cases are named for the parties who stand to gain or lose in the real world, often through their liberty or livelihood. When I write an opinion resolving a case, I read every word from the perspective of the losing party. I ask myself how I would view the decision if one of my children was the party that I was ruling against. Even though I would not like the result, would I understand that the decision was fairly reasoned and grounded in law? That is the standard that I set for myself in every case, and it is the standard that I will follow so long as I am a judge on any court. When the President offered me this nomination, I was deeply honored. But it was not a position I had sought out and I thought carefully before accepting. The confirmation process and the work of serving on the court, if confirmed, requires sacrifices, particularly from my family. I chose to accept the nomination because I believe deeply in the rule of law and the place of the Supreme Court in our nation. I believe Americans of all backgrounds deserve an independent Supreme Court that interprets our Constitution and laws as they are written. And I believe I can serve my country by playing that role. I come before this committee with humility about the responsibility that I have been asked to undertake and with appreciation for those who have come before me. 
I was nine years old when Sandra Day O'Connor became the first woman to sit in this seat. She was a model of grace and dignity throughout her distinguished tenure on the court. Yeah, she was. When I was 21 years old and just beginning my career, Ruth Bader Ginsburg sat in this seat. She told the committee, what has become of me could only happen in America. I have been nominated to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat, but no one will ever take her place. I will be forever grateful for the path she marked and the life she led. If confirmed, it would be the honor of a lifetime to serve alongside the Chief Justice and seven Associate Justices. I admire them all and would consider each a valued colleague. And I might bring a few new perspectives to the bench. As the President noted when he announced my nomination, I would be the first mother of school-aged children to serve on the court. And I know that it would make Senators Young and Braun happy to know that I would be the first justice to join the court from the Seventh Circuit in 45 years. I would be the only sitting justice who didn't attend school at Harvard or Yale, but I am confident that Notre Dame could hold its own, and maybe I could even teach them a thing or two about football. There you go. As a final note, Mr. Chairman, I would like to thank the many Americans from all walks of life who have reached out with messages of support over the course of my nomination. I believe in the power of prayer, and it has been uplifting to hear that so many people are praying for me. I look forward to answering the committee's questions over the coming days. And if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed, I pledge to faithfully and impartially discharge my duties to the American people as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Thank you. Okay, what about separation of church and state? How dare she mention prayer? Supreme Court Justice confirmation hearing. I have a book downstairs that actually mentions all scripture that's all throughout our founding documents. I know. Just saying. I know. So, you know, I I didn't know anything about her prior to this taking place, just so you know. And I, um, you know, am really happy with what I'm seeing. But I honestly, you know, what I was thinking, I was thinking, man... I would, first of all, a couple of thoughts went through my mind. Number one, she looked great in that outfit, didn't she? Isn't that color nice on her? Um, but the other thing is, <laughs> the other thing is, um, how sad that she had to sit there with a mask on her face that whole time. I mean, to me, that is the epitome of stupid this whole thing you know they're all doing I mean, all of them were pretty i know much they all were except for people talking but still here she is she's about ready to be sworn in or confirmed uh barring some disastrous thing happening overnight um she'll she'll be confirmed right i hope um but how sad that she had to sit there with a with an ugly black mask on her face um listening to people talk about her and talk to her and talk over her um uh, you know, I think, and, you know, a couple of people, they noted that her children, here they are, there's nine, seven children, they're all sitting there, perfect little children, you know, they're all sitting there, 
None of them are crying and they're not wrestling. They're not trying to get up and they're not crying, mommy, or nothing like that. I'm thinking that should tell you the power of her parenting right there. I'm just saying. Okay, so this last person we're going to play is Patricia O'Hara, uh, who is her mentor. And they, she was actually supposed to speak before Amy, uh, but her they were having technical difficulties. And, and I'm really glad that um, Lindsey Graham allowed her to speak afterwards because I really wanted to hear what she had to say. And I think what she had to say um, was pretty cool. And I know as I, I was, as I was watching this, I was thinking if I was Amy and my teacher, Susie, uh, who I have been friends with since 10th grade, if she was sitting there talking about me, I probably would have been crying. You know, I'd be going, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. You know, my mentor said this, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So, uh, so let's play that. And then, uh, we'll wrap this show up. It's about seven minutes. Real quick. Um, okay. Yeah. My back is starting to bug. I mean, my back's hurting anyway. But I need to get something Maybe. on it. I'll have to check the dates. But, yeah, these nominations close to an election are, I think, are shattering anew. But, anyway. No. All right. So, let's, let's do the um, YouTube thing here. Um, yeah, there it is. Gotta get the right one, people. So, let's try Professor O'Hara. Any luck with her? I'm here, Chairman Graham. Thank you. I apologize for the, the problem. Uh, the floor is yours. That's very kind of you. It's, it's anticlimactic because you've already heard from the most important person from whom you need to hear. Uh, but it's very kind of you to take the time. Uh, I have known Judge Amy Coney Barrett for just shy of 20 years. And I want to thank you, the ranking member, uh, Senator Feinstein, the, the distinguished members of the Judiciary Committee, Senator Young and Senator Braun, for the opportunity to speak about her here today. Uh, I first came to meet her when, as dean of the law school, together with my colleagues, we recruited her to the faculty in 2002. I was aware of her reputation as a law student, but I had not taught her. So I can well remember that in the initial interview, from my standpoint, I was not thinking of her so much as a Notre Dame alum, but rather as a candidate in whom many law schools would have an interest. Uh, after all, she was first in her class. She was executive editor of the Law Review. She had held two distinguished clerkships for demanding jurists, Judge Lauren Silverman on the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and Justice Antonin Scalia, a short period in private practice at then at Baker Botts, and an Olin Fellowship at George Washington University Law School. So from my standpoint as dean, in a market in which law schools compete aggressively for candidates with sterling credentials like her, Amy Coney Barrett was a big hit and a big win for us. In the course of the next few years, I was responsible for creating an environment in which she could take her potential and reach the maturation that would be necessary to meet the demanding standards of excellence in scholarship and teaching for promotion to tenure. I want to assure you that it was the easiest task of my entire 10 years as dean. I watched her develop into an exceptional teacher and a superb scholar. Except that I must confess to say watching her develop is a bit of a misnomer because in many ways, Judge Barrett sprang full grown into the legal academy. 
The first of three distinguished teaching awards that she holds from our students was presented to her by only the second class that she taught. And in my annual visits to observe her classroom teaching, it became clear to me why that was the case. Our students then and now hold her in awe for the power of her intellect and for her consummate professionalism. To read her student teaching evaluations is like reading a thesaurus that only has superlatives in it. Uh, her classes are known for the clarity of the presentation of substantive legal material, but also for open-minded, non-directive discussion, question and answer, respectful of differences and of differences in learning style with our students. Our students strive to meet her high and demanding expectations because they just don't want to disappoint her. Uh, and they greatly appreciate her availability outside the classroom for mentoring and support. At the same time that she was developing and building relationships with our students, she also produced an incredible portfolio of scholarships, superb in both its depth and its quality. Scholars around the academy hold her work in the highest regard. And so when it did come time for her tenure case, I can only tell you without breaching the confidentiality of that process, that it was as easy as a tenure case could possibly be. Her work appears in leading law reviews, University of Chicago, Columbia, Cornell, Virginia, and Texas, to name but a few. I was not surprised in later years when she was tapped for service on the Appellate Advisory Committee on the Federal Appellate Rules of Procedure and elected to the prestigious American Law Institute. And in her three years as a judge on the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, her opinions have been characterized by the same qualities as her scholarship. Intellectual rigor, painstaking analysis, clarity of legal reasoning and of writing, uh, accompanied by her deep commitment as a jurist to apply the law to the facts of the case before her. Stellar as her professional accomplishments are, no introduction of Professor Barrett is complete without talking about her personal qualities. She is brilliant, but humble, fair and impartial, but empathetic, open-minded and respectful of differences, a skilled listener and able to build consensus, generous, especially to those in need. If I had to describe her in just a few words, I would tell you that Amy Coney Barrett is a woman who leads an integrated life of mind, heart, and soul. And it's that integration that allows her to move so seamlessly uh, between her professional responsibilities and her family commitments. It humbles me now, as it did 12 then, 12 years ago, that I was tasked at one point in my life with evaluating the professional qualifications of Judge Barrett in a university setting. Truth be told, she ran circles around me as a junior faculty member, and in the intervening years, she has left me completely in the dust. And nothing gives me more joy than to be able to say so, because this is the standard of excellence that we should demand for institutions of singular importance to us. I have only had two opportunities to communicate with this distinguished committee. The first was 10 years ago when I wrote a very strong letter of support for then nominee, now Justice Elena Kagan, whose tenure as Dean of Harvard Law School overlapped with my own tenure as Dean here. The second is today in presenting Amy Coney Barrett to you and endorsing her in equally strong terms. There may be some who would find those two recommendations in juxtaposition, but I find them entirely consistent. Over the course of my 40 years in the legal academy, I've been blessed with the opportunity to meet many Supreme Court justices. 
As to the justices I've met, while their judicial philosophies may differ and their interpretive methodologies may differ, what they share is powerful intellects, rigorous work ethics, skilled listening skills, the ability to be open to persuasion and also to persuade themselves, to be fair and impartial. They are people of integrity and they have a commitment to applying the law to the facts of the case before them. They understand that their role as justices is to advance the rule of law, not to advance personal policy preferences. They understand their solemn responsibility to preserve the court as an institution, not wings of the court, the court, a single institution that plays a singular role in our republic. I know firsthand from having worked with closely with Judge Barrett for almost 20 years that she possesses all these same qualifications in abundance. And I trust that over the course of the next few days, with the opportunity to engage in dialogue with her, that you will come to the same conclusion and recommend her for confirmation as an Associate Justice to the Supreme Court of the United States. Thank you so much for taking this late opportunity to have us say a few words about Professor Barrett. So there so you go. There you go. I, I thought that was so great. Okay. Now, with all of that said, now we've heard the testimony from some, some from the Democrats, some from uh, her supporters. I want to remind you, last night uh, there was an event that we aired, and um, at the end of it, they gave a phone number because they want us to call our senators and ask them to confirm Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. So you can call the Senate switchboard at the following number, 202-224-3121. Once again, people, that number is 202-224-3121. And Randall, I actually do have a graphic. I could shoot it to you if you'd like. Um, would you like me to do that? No. I should have done it earlier. Maybe for earlier. Okay. Well, anyway, I will put the phone number here in the in the chat. We'll put it in the description after the show. But if you do that, you know, do do that. Pick up the phone. It's not going to be hard. Um, I know Marsha Blackburn, who um, spoke here in Tennessee and was very respectful of her. Um, you know, she'll hear my comment when I call her up. I don't think she's going to vote against her, though, just so you know. Uh, but, yeah, so that's, I mean, that, that's pretty much it. I mean, there was a lot more said. You can go over to cspan.org. You can watch the whole thing if you want. I know that they're going to be doing more tomorrow. Um, and, of course, I would urge you to pray for her, pray for Amy, pray for everybody, that they could, you know, be respectful and not have it turn into this, bloodshed thing like they did with Kavanaugh. I mean, it was a disgrace. And, you know, Lindsey Graham actually did make the point, too. Hello, people. Basically, hey, remember, the whole world is watching us, you know? Uh, this this is a no-brainer. Yes or no vote. Just look at the credentials and let the chips fall where they may, right? And I will end with a quote from the Word of God, which says, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan, um, you know, and how do you define what's righteous and what's wicked by what God says, because God made the law. God's the one that gave us our moral ability to 
you know, to he gave us our conscience so that we know right and from right from wrong, right? So there you go. All right, Randall, you have any final comments you want to comment? Um, no, I do not. You know, okay. Well, then it's a consensus. The harps are gonna shut up for tonight, <laughs> and um, I would ask for your continued prayers for me. I, I am not playing pick.